Hello and welcome to this uh, EMJ podcast on precision medicine and we will focus on the new uh, ESMO guidelines on metastatic rectal cancer that has been uh, recently uh, published. Uh, I'm uh, Erika Martinelli, Associate Professor in Medical Oncology. I work in the University of Naples, Van Vitelli, and it's a pleasure to me today to join this podcast with Professor Sebastian Stinsky. Please introduce yourself, Sebastian. Yeah, hi, Erika. It's a pleasure for me uh, to do this podcast together with you. Uh, my name is Sebastian Stinzing. I'm located in Berlin, Germany, and I'm heading the department of uh, hematology, oncology, and tumor immunology here at the Charité. And my uh, focus is basically, well, my research focus is basically gastrointestinal tumors, and there I have a special focus on the treatment of metastatic colorectal cancer. Uh, just before starting, uh, this post is to intend for audience outside the United Kingdom only. Unrestricted funding for this medical education activity has been provided by Perfaber. Well, Erica, as uh, the topic of our podcast is basically precision medicine in colorectal cancer, um, and we just got new ESMO clinical practice guidelines that were introduced, I think, in November last year. Um, what is precision, what role has precision medicine in colorectal ca cancer and what kind of algorithms of treatment uh, do you have in your clinical practice? Thank you for this question. Just to start, uh, it is important to underline that uh, the biomarker evaluation has been very stressed in this version of uh, new uh, ESMO guideline. Of course, it was already present in the past, but now we have some new uh, recommendations. First of all, uh, there is the recommendation to test the biomarker on tumor specimen available, primary or metastatic tumor. And it's also very important uh, in some cases to uh, enrich the sample by using magrodissection in order to have the maximum percentage of tumor cell before DNA extraction. Which are the main biomarkers that has been suggested by the guidelines and that I use in my clinical routine? First of all, we have to test the MMR status, the mutation in KRAS and NRAS exon 2, 3, and 4. And also we have to find the presence of mutation in BRAF V600D. This is the recommendation, the very important recommendation. And this is important because according to this alteration, we know that, and we will see later on, that for RAS-mutated patients, we cannot use, of course, anti-GF receptor. For BRAF mutation, it's important to have this information not only for the prognostic role of the BRAF mutation, the, the mutation V600D, but also because now, we have the drug, the BRAF inhibitor, that can be used in our clinical practice. And another important point is to uh, evaluate, uh, to perform the MMR status testing, because in presence of uh, mismatch repair deficiency, or in case of MSI status tumor, we have to uh, use uh, uh, immunocheckpoint inhibitor. So the presence is a prediction of uh, uh, immuno uh, checkpoint inhibitor. So uh, now in this version, we have uh, uh, the recommendation to test also BRAF because it's predictive, and we have the recommendation also to perform uh, the analysis of MMR. And uh, another things that uh, you will found on the, uh, our guidelines is the presence of the X-CAT scale, which is a scale 
that is able to define, of course, through clinical evidence criteria, which are the, um, the specific alteration we have to prioritize in our analysis, and because they are a marker of uh, uh, selection for targeted therapy. In fact, you, you, you will see the, um, the, the, the SCAT scale you will see that uh, BRAF evaluation MSI are classified with the highest score of 1A. So, Sebastian, these are the, the main uh, tests that I do in my clinical practice, the biomarker that you clinically, in your routine, you use. And uh, uh, if um, you uh, ask for this biomarker, when do you test this biomarker? In the adjuvant setting, in the metastatic setting, and the median turnaround time to obtain this biomarker? Yeah, I think these are interesting questions. I, also, uh, I think um, just when it comes to when to test, I think those standard biomarkers, as you just uh, said, should be tested in all patients with metastatic colorectal cancer before first line. I think that's, that's quite important that we know about the molecular makeup, especially about the molecular makeup of uh, genetic alterations that we are able to target or with the RAS uh, um, mutations that are negative predictive factors for some of the substances. Uh, here, the anti-EGFR antibodies, cetuximab and panitumumab in correct cancer. So I think this is a standard set uh, before uh, initiating any kind of first-line therapy. Turnaround time, this depends. If it's a um, patient that has been treated or uh, the tumor has been surgically removed at my institution, we usually have this within uh, five working days, so like one week. It's a little bit more difficult if it's a uh, patient that was referred to my institution that may have been uh, uh, operated in, in an outpatient clinics or that had a uh, gastroenterology, just had uh, found the uh, colorectal cancer by endoscopy or colonoscopy. This is really more difficult. Then it sometimes takes two, if you are unlucky, up to three weeks to get those molecular uh, basic markers. So that's, I think, a problem that needs to, it's needs to be improved to really get the best for our patients. But I also had, a, had a, when it comes to microsatellite instability, um, especially with uh, undifferentiated adenocarcinomas in stage two and three, um, we would also test those. Um, as we all know, the TNM classification is and the grading especially is changing. If you have an undifferentiated tumor that is MSI high, you have a better grading due to a better prognosis um, um, uh, when you compare this to the MSS um, uh, in uh, undifferentiated adenocarcinoma. So MSI high or better uh, by immunohistochemistry, we are usually defining the mismatch repair deficiency uh, tumors. This is tested also in the adjuvant setting if you have an undifferentiated tumor. But when you come to, to those uh, um, um, data, um, do you get uh, additional data or is it just like it is mutant, yes or no? Because I think nowadays uh, with the upcoming uh, data on KRESH G12C, I think it's also important to get more knowledge about what kind of mutations uh, do we have, especially for the rest mutations. And 
also sometimes allele frequency is reported. Is this something that you would take into account in first line? For example, if you have a BREF V600E mutant uh, case? Well, uh, I know that uh, I agree with you now. We, uh, we are not uh, only find uh, or ask for the presence of mutation, but uh, I agree with you. We have to find which kind of mutation is present. Uh, for BRAF, of course, uh, we only test, uh, or we have the information of V600E because we know that the different mutation, the minor mutation, nowadays has no predictive role for BRAF inhibitor and there is uh, no clear role uh, as a predictive as, and as a prognostic. So for BRAF mutation, I'm happy to receive the information of V600E because when we talk about this mutation, we are referring only to V600E and the drugs that have been labeled are for B, uh, V600D mutation. But I agree with you that now uh, for KRAS, uh, we know that there are uh, new drugs coming for the G12C mutated patient that represent a very small portion of patient, but they have a word prognosis. And in this case, uh, we have to get heavy information, especially because we have a lot of clinical trial that with new inhibitors. But yes, it's, it's important not only uh, to know the mutation, but also which kind of mutation for us. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I think it's, it's very important that you again pointed out that uh, the BREF non-V600E mutant cases are basically um, have a prognosis like the wild type population. I think that's very important that whenever we talk about BREF mutant, we would always refer to the V600E uh, mutation. Uh, and I think it's very important that you point this out because also in clinical trials that I was leading, there were patients included when we monitored the data, it came out that it was not a BREF V600E mutant, but a BREF uh, 589 uh, um, mutant case. So these are rare cases. And so I think it's always important to, to point this out that BREF mutant means... Uh, uh, BREF V600E mutant. And, um, well, we know, of course, uh, that uh, this is always uh, that we have also uh, other mutations or that we also have combinations of some of the uh, mutations and alterations you have told. So RAS BREF and MSI high, I mean, especially for the BREF uh, MSI high population, there are, is, this is overlapping. And how do you approach those patients? In patient with BRAF mutated and MSI high? Okay, uh, this is a good question. And now for patient with BRAF and MSI, I go first with the immunocheckpoint inhibitor. So the first line choice is immunocheckpoint inhibitor. We know that uh, immunocheckpoint inhibitors are also active in presence of BRAF mutation. That uh, This is coming from analysis from uh, the, the, the K-naught 177, so with the use of pembrolizumab. And uh, uh, of course, after progression that uh, luckily in this patient happens uh, after years because they are uh, very sensitive to immunocheckpoint inhibitor, uh, I have two choices, which is the second line at progression to immunocheckpoint inhibitor. And in this case, in presence with BRAF mutation, I will go for targeted agents. So I will use encorafenib, which is a BRAF inhibitor in combination uh, with uh, cetuximab, because uh, for two reasons. First of all, because I think that, and we will touch down uh, after, that uh, for uh, BRAF mutated tumor, targeted agents is 
effective, it's very effective. And also we know that uh, the, the probability that the patient can receive, the BRAF patient can receive further line, it's lower because we have the funnel, uh, the, the funnel uh, effect you know, when we have a BRAF mediated tumor. So I want to give the best drug in the best moment. Sebastian, we're talking about uh, biomarkers. So it seems that uh, the biomarkers are hierarchical in our decision in order to build up an algorithm. Okay, so which is your uh, algorithm in first line and also in second line for your patient according to biomarker analysis? Yeah, I think um, there we really got a new uh, strategy, I would say, by the new ESMO guidelines. Because when we look at those ESMO guidelines, um, in the old guidelines from 2016, there was the patient fitness as the first uh, level of decision, I would say. And after that, uh, the molecular makeup, those markers that you already told us so RAS, BREF and um, MSI high was tested and now it's basically the other way around so uh, when we look at the actual ESMO guidelines um, f- at first comes the molecular makeup and this is really then giving us uh, the decision tree how we may or we should uh, treat our patients of course always according to their fitness, to their performance status, and also according to the comorbidities. I think this is common knowledge that we, of course, always adapt our chemotherapy, whether we use doublet or triplet, whether we use full-dose doublet chemotherapy, or if we want to reduce one of the substances due to side effects or to to comorbidities of the patient. I think this is really uh, the art of treating patients in oncology. So... Here, it really comes that first we have the RAS mutational analysis. And as we know, around about 50% of our patients are RAS mutant. And those RAS mutant patients, unfortunately, uh, so far, we do not have other approved drugs as we had like 15 years ago. So we would start probably with a doublet chemotherapy plus uh, the VEGF antibody uh, bevacizumab. There might be some patients that should be treated with Folfoxiri plus Bevacizumab, so the triplet. Uh, the best data and the latest data we had on this issue comes from the Cairo 5 study, which had been presented at last year's ASCO. And those were liver-limited patients. Um, and uh, the question was, Is are we able to induce the higher rate of surgical um, rem- uh, secondary metastectomy for those patients when we use a doublet or a triplet chemotherapy. And they, I think we had very convincing data that RAS mutant and also RAS wild-type patients with a right-sided tumors may be treated with triplet plus bevacizumab and not if if possible, if there are no comorbidities. And all the other patients that are probably never resectable, also I don't like this phrase a lot because we always see patients that get resectable at some point, even though we have never thought it in the beginning. But however, if you have those m- multiple metastasized patients for uh, re- that are res white, we would start with doublet, for Fox or for Fury plus uh, Bevacizumab. I think that's that's important. And then, of course, we have the RAS wild-type population. For the RAS wild-type population, uh, here, really left and right side, so the location of the primary is important. 
and should be taken into account when we do a first-line decision. And especially for the left-sided uh, RAS wild-type tumors, which are probably around what every third patient you'd see, uh, those patients should be treated with doublet chemotherapy plus anti-EGFR. And I think it is quite it was quite important to see that an um, triplet uh, chemotherapy, so for Fox series plus panitumab, was not able to add any be uh, further benefit to a doublet plus panitumab. This was nicely shown by the Italian uh, tripleted trial, I think. So we are adding we should go with a doublet, and this is good enough uh, for those patients that are RAS white and left-sided. And then, of course, we have those BRAF mutant, and we know that RAS mutation and BRAF mutations are more or less mutually exclusive. There are some tumors that may be able to have both, but most of them are either RAS mutant or BRAF mutant. And those, of, as you said before, are special special uh, tumors and may be treated with doublet plus bevacizumab. Uh, if there is a role for triplet, we don't know really, but uh, I think for most of the patients, doublet, uh, starting with Folfox, probably bevacizumab would be good enough. And then, of course, we should uh, test for MSI high. MSI high, as, as you mentioned, should be treated with pembrolizumab. And uh, we think, um, even though there is an overlap of around 30%, so one-third of the BRAF V600 mutant are also MSI high, those should also treat with pembrolizumab. I, I totally agree uh, with your um with your uh, standard uh, uh, sequence here. Uh, and uh, so we have very clear guidelines for those patients according to RAS, BRAF, and uh, MSI high in first line. And I think that's quite quite interesting. And uh, when we think about toxicity in first line, we also have uh, new data on those guidelines because maintenance really has given some room in, in this uh, field now, as we have seen, and uh, new data on uh, anti-EGFR maintenance lately. So I think it's also helpful to, uh, to look at those guidelines if you want to see how we should treat those patients when toxicity kicks in, when we want to reduce toxicity, but want to maintain efficacy of those treatment, uh, induction treatments. I think this is quite, quite good. And then, of course, also second line. We also have a decision tree for second line now. And I think this is really driven by the landmark data of the Beacon trial, where we were able to treat the BRAF V600E mutant patients in second line or after a fluoropyrimidine uh, systemic treatment with the uh, well, non-cytotoxic regimen of uh, encorafenib and cetaximab. And I think um, I was just uh, uh, laughing to myself as you said, well, MSI high BRAF, we, test, we, we treat them with pembrolizumab first, and after that we would go for um, encorafenib cetaximab. So basically, neither in first line nor in second line, there would be an, an cytotoxic uh, chemotherapy. And this is just uh, improvement we have lately witnessed. I think it's it's wonderful. Yes, this is changed our paradigm of treatment of treated patient because uh, for colorectal cancer, for metastatic colorectal cancer, we have for years used chemotherapy and we know that chemotherapy is effective. We don't uh, we, we know that, for example, fluorouracil is one of the, the backbone chemo that has been used since here. But uh, I agree with you. If we consider 
the population of MSI high and, uh, and be rough now, we can go uh, in first and second line only with immunocheckpoint inhibitor and uh, target agent sparing, uh, at least in first and second line, uh, chemotherapy. And of course, uh, and this is uh, for BRAF, I think that for BRAF mutated V600E, we have a real change compared to the old uh, guidelines because, uh, as you stressed, for first line, now there is uh, much, we are much more convinced to use a doublet with BEVA rather than triplet. Maybe we can uh, still use in some. Uh, very selected patient. I don't know uh, your which your opinion, but I think that we, this should be the triplet should be selected for chosen for young uh, patient with a very good performance status, able to tolerate chemotherapy. But now in second line uh, for BRAF, we have the opportunity to have uh, this targeted agent according to the the BRAF. Uh, uh, to, to the vegan trial, this very important, uh, very important trial. So, uh, so uh, we think that uh, uh, this the biomarker are very, very important. Now it is impossible to uh, start uh, the treatment of metastatic or rectal cancer without knowing at least MSI, the, the MMR status, uh, BRAF and, and RAS. Okay, so I think that this is the first thing to ask and the first thing to do when we visit our patient. And uh, another thing that has been very stressed on the guidelines is to work together within the multidisciplinary, multidisciplinary team in which uh, there is also the, the pathologist is very important because as you have uh, said, the information uh, we, we have to ask this information analysis on the pathologist and of course, you have to uh, pretend this information in a very short time turnaround. I have just one question for you, Sebastian. In case, this is not quite often, but in case we do not have the tissue, the primary metastatic, do you go for liquid biopsy to test this biomarker in your clinical practice? Well, uh, first of all, um, in an ideal world, yes, definitely. In an, well, we always have to have a look at, at reimbursement. So it's not reimbursed in, in Germany right now, but I think it's the next step to go. Um, so within clinical trials, we are using uh, this new tool of liquid biopsy. It's not so new anymore, but especially if we have, a, I think it's different whether we have like a actionable uh, mutation such as BRAF V600E. I think it's very easy. If you find it in liquid biopsy, well, you can treat it according to the beacon trial with cetuximab and carafenib. Uh, I think it's, it's a little bit more problematic if you have, uh, if you have something like an, an RAS wild. How, how sure are we that the sensitivity is good enough to really detect um, RAS mutations, which are, as you know, a negative predictor for the use of anti-EGFR. I think that's quite important. If there's if a RAS mutation is there, it's very clear you should not use anti-EGFR antibodies. But I think it's still a problem of um, of sensitivity, and as we know, uh, even mutations within the tissue of up to five percent should be reported as RAS wildtype according to the SMPC of, of uh, panitumab and cetuximab. So uh, we can use cetuximab and panitumab up to an allele frequency of five percent in the tissue, which is, I think, questionable. It is kind of it was 
defined when both antibodies were approved like 10, 15 years ago. But I think uh, right now we really uh, have to use uh, tissue as if possible. Of course, I have selected patients where I would go for liquid biopsy if it's just too difficult to, um, to get tissue. And especially when we think about um, the re-challenge of anti-EGFR, I think here we really have very solid data if we are thinking about re-challenge of anti-EGFR and third or further line treatment, here um, I would definitely recommend to re-biopsy or to do a liquid biopsy to exclude RAS mutations, upcoming RAS mutations or new RAS mutations in those patients that have already uh, that were already treated with anti-EGFR before. Yes, I, I completely agree with, uh, with you. So we both use uh, outside clinical trial, of course, we have uh, in our institution different clinical trial with the usual liquid biopsy, but of course, outside clinical trial, we have to test on, uh, on the, the biomarker on, on the tissue and use uh, liquid biopsy in the challenge strategy. And uh, just to conclude about biomarker, but we, we don't also have to consider that in third line, we can also use uh, uh, for BRAF mediated tumor, uh, NCORAF and Ibenchetuxima. But also, if you see the algorithm of the guidelines, we still consider uh, the biomarker because, as you said, we have the possibility to perform a challenge. But there are also other markers like R2 in the guidelines. Of course, there is a recommendation to test R2, but not in all patients, only in RAS wild type patient. And of course, not because, uh, before the first line, because we know that the phase two trial that has been carried out are in, in the later line. So uh, R2 testing uh, for the identification of R2 amplification uh, or to overexpression are predictive of response to R2 blockade. Uh, which is your approach in your clinical practice? Do you test R2 and when or only in a clinical trial setting? Well, I think um, we, um, so those patients that are RAS Vita where we are most where we would be able to find those her two overexpressed uh, patients, uh, we usually rebiopsy uh, after after second or third line when we think about okay we're running out of options here uh, may this be a her two positive so these are patients uh, where we would rebiopsy to see whether her two is overexpressed uh, because we know. Also, an anti-EGFR treatment may uh, induce a HER2 overexpression as one kind of secondary resistant mechanism. So <clears throat> it's it makes sense to rebiopsy patients at this point. And um, we are still not rebiopsying patients with colorectal cancer often enough. I think we are doing this on a very regular basis, for example, for breast cancer. And colorectal cancer, of course, we do not have the decisive um, point here when we have a HER2 positive because it's not approved. Also, we have very positive data. But yes, of course, when we have uh, a patient in this line, he's still fit enough, we would rebiopsy and test for HER2. And then we usually have trials open to, to uh, treat those special patients. But it's quite rare when you just uh, think about the Heracles trial. I think they screened like 830 patients or 20, 823 patients 
to get a total of 25 patients treated in the end. So, well, it is, uh, it's easy to do because it's an immunohistochemistry, um, but uh, we usually rebiopsy. And if we rebiopsy the patients, we usually try to put uh, them into some kind of master program, meaning we are doing then a very extensive, a very comprehensive genetic testing on those patients um, to see whether they fit into one of those trials or to put them into the molecular tumor board to get some more information and maybe alternative treatment options uh, for those patients. In fact, it's the same thing that we do. So we use this wide genomic testing, but of course we discuss each case within the molecular tumor board because we will find the alteration and of course we should have also the clinical trial uh, in order to, to enroll this patient. Okay, so uh, we have uh, reviewed... Uh, the guidelines, we have uh, um, highlighted the importance to perform biomarkers, so never start your treatment before knowing this important biomarker. I think that is the, the bottle message from, uh, from the guidelines and also from, uh, from me and from, uh, from Sebastian. And uh, I thank you very much for your attention. Sebastian, do you want to say hello? <laughs> well, Erica, hello. I just can uh, say that it was a pleasure again to, to discuss those uh, new guidelines with you, with especially focus on the BRAF V600E mutant. And uh, it's always nice to discuss this within the European community and to see and to be happy about those progresses we have witnessed and we have seen during the last years. And as I said, for me, probably the KRAS G12C mutated is the next next important biomarker to come, but we will have to wait until we have the studies. So thank you so much, Erica. Bye-bye. Thank you.